I'm Abby Wamba, and you wouldn't believe how many times I've recorded this to just sound natural and calm. This is Why We Laugh. It's a podcast about why we laugh. And on it, I interview scientists and psychologists and humor writers and comedians about what makes them laugh and how they make other people laugh and what laughter's for anyway. And this is definitely the take I'm going to use because I can't do it again. I'm glad you're here, wherever you are. And I really apologize for the desperation in my voice. It's a fun show. I promise. Welcome to the first episode of Why We Laugh. Uh, I made this podcast because I started doing stand-up this year and I went back to the basics and I googled why do people laugh and the internet left something to be desired in its answering of that question. There were a bunch of Scientific American articles that were basically like, I don't know. And I think it's kind of cool that there's this magical thing that humans do to connect with each other that we all love that we don't really understand and we also do when we're embarrassed or scared. But I think we can know more than we do now. I have been looking at this topic from various angles for a long time now. I graduated in 2008 with a degree in humor and social change, which is an embarrassing thing to say to your prospective in-laws, but I am still interested in it. My first guest is Dr. Casper Adiman. He's the director of the Goldsmiths Infant Lab. He's a baby laughter scientist and has done some of the most compelling research on what makes people laugh and why, starting from when they're just little, tiny, little babies. So stick around. I'm going to interview Dr. Adiman. But first, there's a message from our sponsors, Confidence and Beanbag Chairs. Do you want to try something new without worrying what other people will think? Do you want to really go for something without thinking you're not worthy? Do you want to have any social interactions at all without replaying them afterwards and hating yourself? The answer is confidence. Confidence will have you going through your daily routines, same as usual, but without all the concern that you're really a sack of shit and everybody is just about to find out. Having confidence feels like doing stuff and being pretty sure you're not messing up and then not being shocked about that. Unfortunately, confidence is not available anywhere. You have to want it, but not so bad that other people can tell. You can try to procure confidence on two popular paths, getting good at everything you care about or stopping to care about anything. There are other paths to confidence, but they involve painful self-reflection and sitting with your feelings, and you don't want to do that, do you? Confidence. Another thing you can feel bad about not having. Hey, Joel, is your chair okay? It doesn't look so good, man. Maybe you should get that thing checked out. Maybe it's something I ate. No, man. It's totally fine, aren't you, buddy? It's a beanbag chair. A beanbag chair is a garbage bag full of beans you can leave in your living room to sit on. Well, why would you want to do that? (laughs) Great question. 
Well, they're awful to get out of, but to sit on one, you just kind of have to stop standing and hope it has enough filling to soften your blow to the ground. And once you're down there, if you rich around a lot, sometimes you can find a position to sit in that only feels lumpy in the right places while you play Mario Kart. Wow, that doesn't sound so good. And it looks like my dad when he collapsed trying to run a 5K for lymphoma. But I still kind of want one. Yeah, isn't that wild? Oh, does anybody have some bear? Don't call an ambulance. It's too expensive. Beanbag chairs are available way too many places and are the only piece of furniture taking prescription blood thinners. Get one to regret one. Hi, I'm Dr. Casper Adiman, uh, and I run the Goldsmiths Infant Lab. Goldsmiths is part of the University of London, and I'm a psychologist there, and I study how babies learn about the world, so we need a, an infant lab to do that in. That is so uh, cute sounding. Is that so cute? <laughs> Yeah, it's like a little nursery. Um, yeah, The only way you can get babies to participate in anything is to make everything a fun game. So, Me too. <laughs> Good point. Yeah. I'm going to start out by asking you something that I ask everybody, and that is, can you tell me about a time that you remember laughing really hard? Oh, uh, yes. Well, I, I have a friend with a three and a four-year-old staying with me uh, at the moment. And we were playing a robot game and the four-year-old was very good at doing uh, I am a robot voice. <laughs> and then the three-year-old managed to do it as well. But then I got asked them to demonstrate it to my, my partner when she got back. Um, Can you do the robot voice? The second time round, they didn't just do the robot voice. They did full robot actions. Uh, <laughs> it was unrehearsed and unprompted. So we were all laughing an awful lot at that. Oh, that's so fun. Can you remember um, an early memory that you have of making someone else laugh? I was thinking about that this earlier, actually. Um, I'm, I'm absolutely terrible at remembering jokes. At school, I, I think my sense of humor was very dry, so I didn't probably make people laugh that loud very much. <laughs> Maybe I made them, you know, hmm, yes, that's, that's witty rather than actually <laughs> fun. <laughs> Anything at home? Do you remember making your family laugh at any point? I'm not. I'm not the show off in my family. Oh, okay. there's another one of us. <laughs> well, my little brother, yeah, was captain of laughter in Form Two when he was tiny. <laughs> and we we would wake up in the mornings, come downstairs, and this is when he was about four or five. He was watching Monty Python videos from like six in the morning. <laughs> But a very sophisticated sense of humor for a five-year-old. Precocious. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Can you try to describe what you do for your job on a daily basis? What is your job? Yeah, the whole job is, is within psychology, um, which you know, you're ultimately trying to understand people. Um, and I decided that I don't understand adults. It's, uh, <laughs> yeah, and I probably never will. Um, but if we start at the beginning, maybe you know, we'll understand people from first principles, uh, like studying that first two years of life. Um, what did children learn right from the very beginning? And, and so the great thing about doing that is that most things that you, know, you and I can do, you can sort of look at the small baby version of that. How do you relate to people? How do you learn language? How do you learn a new sort of physical skill? Um, and so all of our research has looked 
one way or another at how does a baby do something for the first time? So you learn something that you weren't able to do before. Um, and to actually do that in practice, a lot of the time involves the uh, mum and a baby coming, and so by a baby like under two years old, coming to our, our lab um, and then, yeah, taking part in one of these simple little games where some things might be flashing up on the screen and does the baby start to spot the pot patterns? And at what point did you land on laughter as a key? Um, that is a good good question. So actually, that sort of approach worked really well for studying things other than laughter. And I actually came to laughter as like, well, is laughter a different way of, of asking babies questions? So huh. our cl- classic experiments, um, say if you wanted to know if babies know the difference between dogs and cats, you show them one dog and see how long they're interested. And then another dog, and then another dog, and another dog. And by about dog number seven or eight, they're getting a bit bored of this. And so they're looking around for other things. And then you show a cat. And for a four month old baby, uh, there's another furry thing. Uh, I'm fed up of the furry things game. Um, So they stay bored. By about only five and a half, six months old, you show them that cat and they know that that's different in some way from a dog. And so that's not the same as the things that came before. And so you, you see them perk up, they watch it longer. And that ultimately you've asked the question, do babies know the difference between dogs and cats by making them bored? And I thought that laughter is actually also a good way to ask what babies know. You don't laugh unless you get the joke. Mm-hmm. So with dogs and cats, the one we thought about is if you've got a, a cat and that goes woof, that's only going to be funny when you know that cats don't go woof. So that's what my starting point for looking at laughter was going to be. It's like, is this a different way to, to actually ask babies questions? Um, it didn't turn out like that, but that was, that, that was, <laughs> the, that was the plan. Yeah. Okay. How did it turn out? Well, as a comedian, I, I'm sure you appreciate that it's actually a little bit more difficult than that to get people to laugh. But, <laughs> uh, it's not going to happen every single time. And I think that's what I'd underestimate about laughter is that it's a very spontaneous thing that depends upon building up the relationship with someone. So if you just turn up with this strange scientist who wants you to already in an unusual situation, what's going on? And then suddenly... Right, woofing, woofing cats. The baby's already uh, a bit bewildered, and so they're they're more just like, who is this person? What are they doing? So actually, studying laughter, asking parents about the things that make babies laugh, is a great way of knowing what babies understand. But it's a terrible way of sort of doing a controlled experiment that's the same every single time. So like the joke in that experiment would be, that's funny because it's wrong. Yeah. Because I have a different expectation and you're presenting me with something that is not what I think is true. Yeah. And that they need to actually be comfortable before that happens mm-hmm. to think that's funny at all. Uh, I mean, to give even, even more extreme example, we started trying to look at, see if we could um, see what happened if you tickled babies in the lab. And tickling you know, is, um, along with peekaboo, is like the, one of the most reliable ways you can make a baby laugh except when they're in the lab with three or four people (laughs) expectantly waiting Uh, maybe a few sensors to measure their heart rate wired up for that 
and then these first few babies that we're trying to tickle are just not <laughs> not really in the mood for it i think is the the best answer right and tickling is it's yeah. either really fun and everybody's having a great time or i'm laughing because i can't not laugh even though i don't want this to happen <laughs> or how do you walk that line with babies that you don't know i mean like with my kids yeah they ask me to tickle them now because i've learned mm -hmm. that tickling can cross the line you know so with babies how do you figure that out so um so we were always just letting the parents do the tickling so okay <laughs> um but even with the parent just because it was in an unfamiliar environment the children weren't really in the mood for on demand let's play tickling games it's like if you're asking me to play it it's very different from the children coming up and demanding it. You know that thing with adults where you, if you make a joke and people are like, too soon. <laughs> this is not the time. Even babies have like, we're not ready. We're not there. Yeah. Maybe we need an MC for our, <laughs> to warm up the babies before we do the experiment. That's a great idea. I'm willing to do that job. <laughs> <laughs> expand your your brand your repertoire i was wondering actually what kind of stand-up would babies like well this is actually how i got into baby laughter tour so to say my brother was this comedy prodigy and he was he was living with me in london trying to make it as a stand-up comedian so he was just starting out doing lots of open mic nights um and my sister had had her second baby who was then about six months old and they just had this inspiration that Oh, Max could tell jokes to the six-month-old baby and I could explain why they work. And then it's a family collaboration. That was my real starting point to sort of look at baby laughter at all. Did you try it with Max? Well, you probably know a lot of comedians and know that most of them take laughter very, very seriously. <laughs> <laughs> he thought it was a bit beneath him, I think. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Max, come on! An audience is an audience. Uh, it would be it would be too easy to make a, a baby laugh. You know, as an artist, that's not the not, not the challenge that he, he was up for. He's definitely good at making them laugh. But I didn't think he wanted to do it in that setting. So the actual yeah, the family project never happened, but the scientific project sort of grew out of that. And that was yeah, twenty eleven, twenty twelve, and you know, for the last yeah nine years, I, that's been my main interest: laughing babies. Wow. I was thinking when you were talking about babies not laughing before they were comfortable, babies probably don't do that thing that grownups do where they laugh because they're uncomfortable or because things are awkward. Do they? When does that start? Um, so shyness is an interesting sort of sort of being aware of your own reaction. I guess there's two there's two points where you, where you get it. So around the first birthday is the first time they notice that people are laughing at them, that, oh, you're, you're laughing, at, laughing at me. And that's usually a good thing. <laughs> it's like, hooray, you're, you're laughing at me. But yeah, only around two does the sort of shyness turn into sort of, oh, I'm not very comfortable. And somewhere between two and three, I think, um, don't want to do something. And there's sort of this awkward laughter associated with, um, and usually with a stranger as well, yeah, I think, isn't it? It's like this unfamiliar person or someone you haven't seen for a while so i'm trying to think if my kids my eight-year-old definitely does embarrassed laughter or whatever but i don't know that my three-year-old does but they're very different yeah 
laughing because I'm embarrassed or because mm-hmm. something feels like I don't know what to do or I'm like a yeah. little scared. I think they spend less time embarrassed than we do. As adults. <laughs> <laughs> that's nice. Yeah, that's teenage years onwards. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so we develop that when we're, <laughs> when we're embarrassed all the time, we figure out what to do. We have more embarrassment and yeah, I, th- I, I think laughter is a coping mechanism for that. That's Those are some reasons that adults laugh that aren't just joyful, right? Embarrassment, fear, awkwardness. Mm-hmm. But also we laugh because of joy and discovery and connection. And those are the main reasons that you see babies laugh, right? Discovery and connection? Connection, yeah. Connection with other people. Joy is a pure expression of happiness, which is really one of the nicest types of laugh that you get. But then also the joy of discovery and like, I, I can now do this thing that I've been trying all week to master. And sometimes surprise, so sort of, oh, you know, just the shock of something. But the things that don't make them laugh as much are some fear, sort of being diffused. Uh, Freud always thought that laughter was associated with, with schadenfreude. Hey, listeners, this is the part of the interview where I pretended I knew what schadenfreude meant, so I didn't look stupid in front of a scientist. You don't have to do that. I looked it up now. It means the process of deriving joy from someone else's misfortune. And if you're doing that right now, thinking about how the scientist is listening to this and knows that I faked, that's messed up. And uh, with young children, they would laugh at somebody falling over because it wasn't them falling over. Babies don't do that. They, they're actually too concerned about people falling over. So, yeah. Uh, they're too nice, babies, to have Freud's ideas applied to them. But yeah, the really important ones are happiness, connection, and then this joy of the newness of the world. And so I'm thinking that that's kind of what the idea behind stand-up is. I've just been thinking, why do people like stand-up? And I think it's the joy of discovery, right? Thinking of things in a different way. But also, it doesn't work the same when you're alone watching it. You don't laugh as much. You don't feel that connection. And you have done research about kids and how much they laugh when they're with someone else, right? Yeah, so so we did did that. I think you're absolutely right that the um, in the the stand-up comedy and the sort of the reason why we are, we as adults find babies funny is there's sort of a lot, a lot of parallels that, that you see this baby just encountering something in a way that you wouldn't. And so that's inherently comical. And that's a lot of what a comedian is trying to do is show you something that you see every day, but from a different angle. I really hadn't thought of comedians as like babies, though. <laughs> We're trying to make people laugh the way that babies do. By looking at something differently. That's so cool. And then I think a lot of the success of that is also that you have to create a good rapport with with that audience. You have to have this connection with them, which is really a central bit of the way we do it with babies as well. That you know, They're going to laugh with people that they like and that they're familiar with. And once they are familiar with you, the point that they start laughing at you, know, you or with you is a sign that, right, they've overcome their shyness. Part of why we laugh yeah. is to show people that. I think it's to connect with other people, yeah. I always think of it as that the audience want to be friends with the comedian and they're sort of trying to sort of uh, share in what's going on and that 
the comedian holds the power in that situation and so within the dynamic there if they get it right <laughs> yeah they provide that experience for everybody but on one-on-one situations yeah a lot of why we laugh with our friends and with our children is and sort of the, some a lot of the best theories of where laughter came from as as a human trait are to do with connecting with other people uh that's so nice there was a specific project you did right where you watched kids watching cartoons yeah so that third bit of why does it work in an audience what makes sitting in in an audience right next to other people laughing increase the laughter that also points to the fact that laughter is this social thing that it's it's not just for you to tell yourself I found that funny it's for you to tell other people either the person up in front of you or the people around you that yes I found that funny too and we did exactly that with some three-year-olds so we got them to watch um, Bernard the Bear which is a cartoon bear who's very clumsy so he falls over all the time uh, and we had three different cartoons and so one time they'd watch it on their own another time they'd watch it sitting next to a, a single other child and the third time they'd watch an episode in a group of, of four or six uh, toddlers and then we filmed the, the children's faces and we counted the number of laughs and smiles oh cool within a a five minute window how many times did they smile how many times did they laugh and we found that well smiles it went up by a factor of three as soon as you went from being on your own to being in any company you smile three times as much wow but you actually laughed eight times as much as soon as there was just one other person there your laughter is much more demonstrative. You're actually laughing out loud. They're three-year-olds, so we could ask them at the end, was that funny? And in all cases, they said, oh, oh yeah, it's funny. But they only ever laughed when they were sitting next to the other children. And from a scientific point of view, we had to make sure they weren't just laughing at each other. So it wasn't like a cascade of, you laughed, I should laugh too. If that was the case, you'd think it would go up the more children there were in the group. And actually... They laugh just as much in pairs of two as when you had this big group. Really? So, yeah, the, the size of the audience didn't matter for children and, and for, for cartoons, I think. Interesting. Probably there's a, there's a difference if you were looking at comedy audiences. A factor of eight sounds correct. For me, watching something alone or watching with my partner, I'm not laughing, really. At most, I'm like, huh. <laughs> If I'm alone. And then I'm really laughing if we're together. I'm thinking about Zoom and how it's pretty intense that you can actually see if people have their videos on. They are laughing or I'm laughing as an audience member, but it doesn't feel quite the same as when I don't think somebody's looking at me. I don't know. It just changes the quality. Right, so it's been harder to do gigs on Zoom then. Yeah, I think actually people laugh as much, but it feels more voluntary. And I guess that's what my question is. Is laughter involuntary or voluntary or sort of both? Do you have to laugh? Sometimes it feels like that. Yeah, uh, I mean, it's definitely a lot of both, but I think sort of um, the involuntary comes first. So... That's the, the catalyst. And the involuntary bits come out of things like, oh, the number of people that are around you. And then voluntary bit is on top of that sort of feeling, I'm, I'm too exposed here, I'm, I'm awkward, I'm too self-conscious to actually concentrate on what should be making me laugh or uh, 
I guess, what other voluntary controls would you, you have over it? Like you can decide not to laugh. Yeah. Sometimes it does not feel like you cannot laugh, but <laughs> sometimes it feels like a real laugh can either be started or stopped. It's a choice. Yeah, maybe if you carry over something that you were... The feeling of I, I'm actually enjoying being angry at the moment, so I'm not. I don't want to stop that that feeling. Yeah. So you're not you're not going to win me over with all of your jokes. Yeah. Yeah, that's a really good example. My kid has started trying to make me laugh when I'm mad, uh-huh. and it's really confusing. <laughs> so like, <laughs> that's really funny. Stop. The rest of what you're doing isn't funny. Yeah. yeah. When you're monitoring laughs. Do you see a difference between laughs that are physically induced when a parent is tickling or something and laughs that are cerebral from something they saw or thought? Um, I, I haven't been able to investigate that very well. So we, we've started doing a lot of experiments using webcams in families' homes. So they're much more of a, a natural setting. We started to do that just before uh, the pandemic hit. So we we were lucky we could carry on with these types of research. Whereas you know, all, all of my colleagues were then madly scrambling for how do we replace what we're already doing? Yeah. And yeah, still haven't looked at, at, at tickling directly recording the reaction. We've just sort of been doing a few simple jokes. We basically had parents do five different jokes that would work with an 18 month old baby. So peekaboo would be classic one. Classic. And that one I mentioned, making a, a, do- a toy dog or a toy cat make the wrong noise. See what they think of that. Um, um, I think you're putting a cup on your head, pretending that it was a hat. Uh, see if um, that was saying. And then uh, oh, I can do it. putting and talking with something in your mouth. That work. That works surprisingly well. To put something in your mouth and talk with something in your mouth makes babies laugh. Yeah, yeah, works well with babies and. There was one more. So we looked at we looked at all of those to sort of see how quickly they laugh at it. And when you repeat it several times, does it get funnier or less funny? And we only did it three times. We didn't push the envelope too far. So three times in a row is 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 plenty. But actually, babies love repetition. So yeah, maybe that is one we should try at some point. That also could directly apply to grown-ups, like a certain number of repeated jokes or callbacks is very funny and then when does it get old ask the babies when does it get old (laughs) we want to know also i wonder when they were doing it when they repeated it did they change their delivery have you like did it get bigger every time did they do the exact same thing every time did you give them instructions on that um we just sort of said do this three times and then we will film it and we'll see and the, the parents sort of give their their own little rating of how funny the, the, the child found it. And yeah, it does seem, it looks like they're doing sort of a fairly similar thing. We've set them up, but this is a scientific experiment. So <laughs> people are a bit, right, well, I should do this in a very uh, robotic way, rather than trying to, oh, I didn't, didn't get the reaction I wanted the first time. So I'll uh, really go for it the second and third time. I wonder what would happen if you gave this task to comics to do with their kids. (laughs) (laughs) They would take it seriously, I feel like. I'm going to try it. Yeah, I'll I'll send you the jokes. A three-year-old might might be a a bit infantile, this humor, mommy. 
I think that the uh, putting something in your mouth and talking around it would get my whole family. <laughs> That's comedy gold. Uh. Okay. When you do these experiments with a three-year-old, you can ask them at the end if they thought something was funny. What would you ask a baby if you could... I mean, obviously you can ask a baby anything, but if they could answer you, what would you ask them? I mean, the the biggest question you always want to ask a baby is, who are you? Because uh, actually until about 18 months, the concept of me being something existing apart from other people and that I've got enough of a sense of myself, it's a bit weird for them. So there's lots of things that they... Recognising themselves in a mirror is quite a big step for a baby. And a quite confusing one. It goes through several steps. So that would be my like philosophical thought experiment. <laughs> you just don't want to know what any baby thinks. You want a baby yeah. philosopher. You want to, you sort of want to know, you know, what really deep down <laughs> is the essence of you. I'm going to ask babies that and see what they come up with. Has your research changed what you think is funny? Yeah, I think it's changed my view of what the best way to make other people laugh is, that it's it's far less about punchlines and far more about the relationship that you're building with them and that, yeah, the really big laughs and the sort of the things that are actually going to have the strongest effect on people are, are actually probably involve quite a lot of setup so they know who you are and why this was a really traumatic thing for you so you can't just tell this this story without genuinely giving like no you don't understand that this really was awful for me to get to that point of you know hor horribly embarrassing thing that you're now sharing with an audience um they have to feel embarrassed on your behalf or so babies have taught us comics. So for me, they taught, they taught me, I think, that for, for comedy um, and for humour, that humour on its own is overrated, I think. You know, humour has to be in context. Although I study laughing babies, I, there are a lot of people who study just humour on its own, and, and that's some of the most depressing thing you can do, just taking, dissecting jokes without sort of saying, well, it was a very funny person telling this joke. Yeah, you know, that's kind of why it's funny. Yeah, you know, the whole setup. Academics approaching humor just don't don't seem to get that. Because people laugh and babies laugh when they like the person, when they feel connected to the person. Yeah. So this is this is research that a guy called Robin Dunbar did uh, quite a few years ago. Now he's an evolutionary psychologist trying to explain what was the origin of laughter, and his view is that it it was originally a replacement for grooming each other that, that chimpanzees would groom each other and as our social groups got bigger and bigger you couldn't go around picking the fleas off everybody you knew the day was too short but you could go around sit with them have a a gossip and a giggle and then you'd feel connected and that would keep the sort of the whole little tribe together um so to test this he went and sat in pubs eavesdropping on people's conversations. They went to loads of pubs in Oxford and London and Paris, um, and then a load of student refractory sort of dining halls and just sort of sat, you know, unobtrusively eavesdropping on these groups and discovered that half of the things that made people laugh were not in the least bit funny. Um, there was someone just, sorry, I'm late. 
and the, the group would would all laugh yeah you are um it's like there's nothing funny at all about that but we're laughing because we're including you in the group and we're accepting that you're late here so yeah over half the things that made people laugh were not in the least bit funny and then in the pubs people couldn't really hold a, the group together so the the conversations sort of splintered down into small groups of about three or four people which is what he'd thought was the case from his studies of as replacing grooming it's like oh yeah so if you go up from grooming one-on-one to groups of two or three that would be the first step and so that's the standard the unit of conversation and that seemed to be the unit of gossip and sort of being able to have a meaningful conversation you can't really have a meaningful conversation with seven people yeah I know that there are many physical benefits of laughing, but is that what we get from laughter? Like, why does it feel good? Is it because we're being included in the group and it's a signal for that? Why do we like to laugh? We're giving something to someone else, acknowledging, but what do we get? Yeah, so I was first remembering yeah, that we're, it's, it's usually reciprocal. So you're laughing and the other person is laughing. So there is that connection to the other person for both of you. Then the fact that it really does seem to have these real physiological benefits of, you know, a good period of laughter is probably as good as some exercise for you in in some ways. That is probably, uh, I think, a deep physiological factor as well, that if laughter really did evolve as this time out of your day, you were grooming each other and that's sort of a very relaxing experience. And laughter comes along as a as an alternative to that, that you're sharing something that is, and it has to be a genuine signal. So you sort of, you can't, you don't want something that you can fake if you're trying to connect with other people. So the fact that laughter is quite energetic and it's quite easy to tell the difference between real and fake laughter is an important part of that as well. That if you care about them and what's happening to them, you will laugh. If you're just trying to fake that, they'll see that you're trying to fake it. And that's very useful if you're all trying to get on as a group in some extended community, all living together day in, day out. So, yeah, it has to be what evolutionary psychologists call that an honest signal, something that is hard to fake. And once you've got that, then everybody benefits because you get to know who your real friends are, because they're the ones that actually do laugh at your jokes. Babies don't fake laugh, right? They can't do it very easily, no. I actually, I did try one experiment to see if they could tell the difference between real and fake laughter, but it didn't work. Um, not because they couldn't tell, but because the experiment was quite tricky to run. It's another one of these things of, right, they've come to a lab and there's lots of distractions. I would be so curious to hear about that. Also, because I think that we just accept fake laughter. I think we can tell the difference. Mm-hmm. We don't stop and point it out. I mean, I fake laugh all the time to make people feel good. Mm-hmm. And so it's just interesting how acceptable it is to fake, even though I'm sure people know when I'm really laughing and not laughing. Yeah. And I, I think it's also to, to bear in mind that the number of different people you interact with on a day-to-day basis is bigger. So if you're only ever fake laughing to your partner or to... <laughs> Um, you know, somebody you see every day, they're going to complain. But if, it, if it's getting on a bus you know, and just dealing with that number of people, putting the effort into, oh, well, I'm trying to get on with you. I'm, it's not like I'm trying to deceive you, is appreciated. 
That's a good point. I don't fake laugh with people I'm close to. I fake laugh with people I don't know. It's why it's exhausting working in retail uh, that you have to be put on all of this fake niceness to people, whatever mood you're in, and over and over and over again. And you get very good at it. It's actually, I've got a, a Prince Philip story that's relevant at this point. Please. <laughs> when I first started my PhD, the lab that I was in had just won a big award from the Queen, the Queen's Award for Science or Innovation or something. And so they had to go to the, the Buckingham Palace to collect their award. Um, I didn't want to go. I, so I, I didn't win the award. But like, well, you're one of the few English people we have in the lab. So you're coming to <laughs> the Buckingham Palace so we all got to Buckingham Palace sit in the big ballroom everything gold and each of these little groups of two professors from each institution would go up to get their award so the, the Queen Prince Philip was sitting up at the front and each group would march up shake hands with him uh, um, one of them shook hands with the Queen one of them shook hands with him and then move, move, move along and from where I could see I couldn't see the Queen she's quite short but I could see Prince Philip and how he was interacting with everybody so the very first person comes up to get their award and Prince Philip shakes her hand, smiles very warmly, asks them this question about what their research is. Um, and then he's listening very intently, very warmly and, and laughing really genuinely about what they what they just told him. It's like, oh, wow, he's, he's in a great mood today. That person must have really fascinated him. And then the next person went up and Prince Philip shakes a hand and smiles and asks them a question. And his mannerisms and expressions was absolutely identical for that person. Oh, my God. It looked, if you were standing right in front of him, it would look, you know, he was really interested in everything you were saying. But every person that came along, you know, actual, the sort of the timing of it, the, the mannerism of it, um, when you could see it from the side, it just looked, oh, this is quite rehearsed. This is quite practiced. And obviously, you know, after 70 years of doing it, yes, it's going to be quite practiced. But if you're standing in front of it, and the first time I saw it, it looked completely charming and, and genuine. And I guess politicians can do the same sort of thing. Right? So you can improve with years of practice. Yeah, you can do, you can fake better, I guess. It's a poor way of putting it, but actually uh, it's a useful skill, isn't it? Social smiling, right? I think it's off, yeah, social smiling is a sort of better term for it than than fake, fake smiling. Oh, that's nice. It makes me feel better about it too. Less of a <laughs> faker. Yeah. But I keep reading everything about Prince Philip is like he had such a great sense of humor. And now I know, actually, he was just really good at fake laughing at everyone's jokes. <laughs> uh, well, that, that was what the second part of it. We were in the reception afterwards. He came and barged into our group. Um, he ignored all the protocol of speaking to the senior people and just fired all his questions at the students. And so he asked, asked the students, how do you even know that children have a mind? Um and it's a very good question. Um, knowing that he had a sense of humour, I did want to um, say, well, how do we know you do? <laughs> but to my eternal regret, I wasn't brave enough to, uh, to put it to him. Ah, oh, that is such a good Prince Philip story. I love that he talked right to the students. Yeah, he, I, I think he has his up and down, but yeah, he was, he was very chirpy and um, yeah, very engaged with it on that occasion. That's awesome. Um, my last question is, do you ever get sick of seeing babies laugh? 
Uh, I haven't yet. I guess nearly 10 years of it being my main focus of my research. No, there, there, there are a few videos. I've I'd had to stop using one where the baby's laugh is more of a cackle than uh, a laugh. <laughs> the, the dad is turning a light switch on and off. And every time he does it, the dad screeches and the baby cackles. And the first 20 times I showed that video, I was like, uh, this is great. And, and now I've had to replace it. <laughs> So you're just sick of that baby. That particular baby. <laughs> that baby's probably not a baby anymore, so it's No fine. offense. Yeah. <laughs> um, do you have anything you want to add or tell us about? Um, well, actually, that this is one point where I did get slightly sick of laughing babies. I, I, I agreed to write a whole book about them. Oh, God. Uh, <laughs> and... And that was a miserable experience. But I'm quite proud of the book that came out of uh, my suffering. It ended up in a, in a quite nice book that tries to cover all these things we've been talking about. Of What is it that a baby's learning in those first two years? And why does laughter give you an insight into what, what it is they've just mastered today uh, and tomorrow and the day after? What's that called? The, the Laughing Baby. Oh, nice. I'm going to read it for sure. Oh, also, can I just ask one more thing? I just saw something you posted about um, laughing babies being Taoists. Oh, yeah. Yes. <laughs> Will you tell us? About, I talked to comedian Bobby Oliver, who wrote the Tao of comedy recently. So I've, I'd always said that one of these things about you know, babies being happy is that they're absorbed in the moment. And so I claimed that they were like little Zen masters. You know, they, they're just so present with whatever's happening to them. I was quite pleased with that until just a few days ago, I discovered Ursula Le Guin had done a translation of the um, Tao Te Ching by Lao Tzu. And one of the poems in that um, is basically saying, you know, Taoism, it's all about acting without acting. You sort of just are spontaneously doing things. Um, and his best example of that is just whatever a baby does, they're not second guessing anything they're doing. They're just being a baby, you know. You you Taoists should should be like that, be the baby, and it's like, damn, I got scooped <laughs> by you know, two thousand five hundred years. Um, a better way to think of it is like, yeah, this, I've discovered ancient wisdom. This is <laughs> this is good news. Yeah, I don't think I think those are good people to be scooped by. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Well, thank you so, so much. This was so helpful to me and really interesting. And I really appreciate you doing it. No, it's, it's been it's been fun to chat, especially uh, with someone who's thought a lot about how how and why people laugh. Yeah, it's, it's nice to nice to have this type of conversation. Thanks for listening to Why We Laugh. I'm Abby Wamba. I'm recording this under a duvet while my children sleep. Thanks to them for continuing to sleep. Thanks to Dr. Casper Adiman. He wrote a book called The Laughing Baby, The Extraordinary Science Behind What Makes Babies Happy. And you can buy it and you can read it. Um, this music's by Poddington Bear. It's called Carefree to Careful. And Schadenfreude is by Freud. Now we all know that. The music in the confidence ad is Corporate Ad by Scott Holmes. Thanks again to our sponsors, Confidence and Beanbag Chairs.